You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. The title of the next podcast is the same as the title of the previous podcast yesterday, part one of why the Bangladeshi Taka is now the South African Rand's most important crossroads. This is, of course, part two of this series of three. With me is Michael Power, who is an investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town, and he's the author of this tome. And I'll give you the first paragraph. It says, the minimum wage for a textile worker in Dakar, Bangladesh is 8,000 taka, or roughly 1,400 rand per month. This covers 4.4 million workers in 4,620 factories and does not include overtime. South Africa's minimum wage, based on an eight-hour day, 22 days a month, is 3,520 rand. You can see what Michael Power is getting at here. How many hours do they work in Bangladesh in order to earn half of what, uh, less than half of what the South African worker receives, Michael? Well, I, I don't know, to be perfectly honest. I'm trying to equilibrate them so you can make a sort of rough comparison. But I would roughly estimate that uh, our guys here in South Africa, through their minimum wage, per hour worked are paid twice as much as, as they are in Bangladesh. It's a very rough and ready comparison, but you can see that it is a very, very big difference. It's a very big difference, but is there also a big difference in the cost of living between Bangladesh and South Africa? There is a big difference in the cost of living, but I think one has to be very careful about that in the sense that actually probably what we're com- trying to compare is somebody who is getting a grant here in South Africa rather than someone who is on minimum wage. Now, they're not the same. And what it is telling me is that as... as you know, as, as limited the lifestyle might be, if you're living off a grant, you can live. And that's the point here is that, you know, do we keep people essentially on the government books doing nothing and earning a grant? Or do we keep people on someone else's books earning very little, but nevertheless able to sustain their lifestyle? It's very interesting as well, because I don't know what the social grant system is in Bangladesh, and I don't want to keep on making the comparison between country east of us and, and South Africa. But on the other hand, it is quite an important point, isn't it? Because necessity is the mother of invention when it comes to employment, to my mind. Absolutely. And I think that the social uh, security network in Bangladesh is is near non-existent. Yeah. So um, you have to understand that really it's a, a question of having a job or, or, or basically living in the rural areas in a, in a subsistence lifestyle and really not getting very much as a result. You make a very important point. You said joining the world trade system opened up the previously closed economy of South Africa, and we're talking now about post-1994, to a very different regime in terms of relative prices. And it doesn't seem to me as though we've managed to absorb the post-1994 global system. We're still sort of struggling with it, especially when it comes to relative prices and also relative wages. Especially relative wages. I think there has been some equilibration between on the relative price side. But the reality is, is that it hasn't happened on the relative wage side. Uh, and we need to somehow uh, get closer. And I'm not saying, and I'll repeat it, I said yesterday, the currency doesn't have to do all the lifting, but it has to do the heavy lifting and, and padded around it needs to be all sorts of other uh, ideas that would support um, uh, the South African worker so that they could be economically relevant in a global context. 
The currency factor is going to be uh, discussed uh, later on in this in this podcast. But you do say after 1994, South Africa played macroeconomic football according to European and American rules. And we reinforced this orthodoxy by adopting inflation targeting in 2000, the, th- the famous three to six percent band. And there's been talk recently, and in fact, in the last few days about that being changed. Do you object to inflation targeting? Not once the relative price structure that a nation has and specifically the semi-skilled wage rate, is aligned with other countries that are are basically making progress. My problem with inflation targeting was that it was premature. We didn't realign our wage rates so much so that they were, broadly speaking, in line with our competition. We froze them at what was a much higher level. Now, to use an analogy, this is the equivalent of, of not resetting a bone of a broken leg before you put on the plaster cast. You essentially end up with a permanent limp as a result. So what needed to happen first is some sort of realignment of the relative prices, and that is an international relative price, not a domestic relative price, so as to make the South African labor force in in all its parts relevant and capable of earning a living in a global context. Would you relax then inflation targeting? In other words, let inflation go because it is more appropriate for an economy such as South Africa's, which is something where between second and third world, I think, uh, just let the inflation go and uh, therefore have obviously a foreign, I, I think foreign exchange said, implications. There, may well, be a, there mm. may well be some point at, in the future when the reinstallation of inflation targeting may not be a bad idea. But to do so while the, the bones of the, of, of the leg are not properly realigned is not going to give South Africa the chance of, of running in this global economy. So, yes, there may be some period of time when we do adjust the relative price structures where there is some sort of inflation. And one has to understand that you know, prices are essentially a, a lattice. And if you're going to adjust some of the prices within that lattice, there will be uh, ramifications and consequences for other prices in that lattice. But we have to get to a situation whereby we have 18 million people directly or indirectly on grants at the moment out of a population of near 60 million. So almost one third of the population. And they are just not relevant in the sense of, I say, they're unemployable in the context of a global economy. And we have to somehow address that that fact. Yeah, I liked your quote, actually, unemployed and unemployable, because I do remember when I went to a pub at the age of 16 with my uh, with my friend and his father, and we were standing at the bar together shooting the breeze, and he looked at this chap to the left of him who had a, a couple of earrings in his ear, and he looked at him and he said, Lindsay, look at that, uh, unemployed and unemployable. Is South Africa unemployed and unemployable with a metaphoric earring, if you, if you like, or uh, uh, some sort of self-adornment which is inappropriate? Maybe it's a, a bad analogy, but I think you see where I'm going here. No, I do see where you're going. I mean, I don't think that uh, the South African workforce, given the opportunity to work, are any less capable of making a T-shirt than the guys in Bangladesh or the ladies in Bangladesh. In mm. fact... Often these uh, these stories are actually led by the ladies and followed by the men. Um, it's not a question of the skill set. Um, I don't think it really um, would take much to adjust South Africa because it's already happening in Lesotho, as I mentioned to you yesterday. So I don't think the catch-up in the regards to the skills would, would take long. The issue is, is at what price are, uh, are semi-skilled and unskilled labor working in a global context? And I don't want to simply duck out by saying what is the dollar rate because ultimately it's a 
it's an Asian rate, and uh, it, 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 the, the, the underlying benchmark is probably Chinese. But there have been some uh, refinements to that since then, because Vietnam and Bangladesh and India uh, are now starting to essentially do the jobs that China was really doing during the 1990s and, and, and the noughties. And now we're seeing that China has got to obviously upgrade itself. It's doing higher value-added products. So it's not just making T-shirts as it was. Uh, it's now making iPhones. And so we are now seeing that, that, that essentially the, the ladder of value-addedness is one that countries have to climb. And we can't assume that somehow we can put our labor on that ladder where a like-for-like job that they would be doing, that they would be paid twice as much uh, as the competition. What has happened to the Bangladeshi uh, tacker, by the way? Has it devalued materially in order to make its exports more competitive? Or has it just uh, fluctuated as normal, given the rate of its competing currencies? It came in at a relatively competitive level. I mean, it's obviously had a long history and there have been periods of weakness. But but now I wouldn't say that the Bangladeshi is, is notably overvalued. You know, it may be, uh, and we'll talk about this in the next session, uh, overvalued when or undervalued when looked at in the Big Mac context. Mm. Um, but I, I see the Big Mac uh, index as itself um, uh, really very flawed. And so I think that it's competitive. Uh, and the issue here is that you know, Bangladeshi labor, in the textile sector especially, uh, is globally competitive. You say here, right towards the end of this meaty piece, you say finally, and this is something that must emerge from inside us all, inside us all, we need to exhibit, as Sia Khaleesi's Springboks have shown to be very possible, a national desire to compete and win. I think that a nation has to be unified in order to have a competitive spirit that everyone embraces, and I don't think that South Africa has a, a cohesion. I think, and this is my view and not yours, that we, how can I say this, we don't like each other. Look, I'm not so sure that's the case. I think that there are obviously differences of opinions yes. between races and, and even within South Africa's black population. So I think that there are issues, but I don't think so much so that they would prevent us from, from putting together a good body of labour that was able to compete in the global context. I really think that, uh, that, that you would find that the, the opportunity to have a, a paying job yeah. um, would, would cross many, many different groups uh, in South Africa. I, I think, you know, we are principally talking by virtue of you know, who are the recipients of the grants at the moment, who are unemployed or, or, or semi-employed and living in rural areas, about South Africa's black population. I mean, if you're, if you're coloured or white or Indian or whatever, you're probably somehow making a living in, in the context of the way South Africa is currently structured. It's really about the unemployed and underemployed black community in South Africa that we're talking about. You say right at the end, why has most of South Africa's business community, and in particular those members of that community who work, as I do, you say, in finance, been unable to grasp the gaping disconnect? So what you're talking about, and when I said we, we don't like each other, I, I thought it was maybe a little bit harsh, but you describe it very neatly by saying gaping disconnect. And there is a gaping disconnect, whether it be between the wealthy and the poor, whether it be between one ethnic community and another. But there are disconnections throughout our society. That's absolutely right. And we have to realise that that is an issue that needs to be muted in somehow. Or, 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 but I think that one critical part of that 
is that those people are, relatively speaking, in the hierarchy of South Africa, privileged enough to have a job at the moment, mm. should not assume that, um, that because they've got a job, there isn't something that can be done that might make some of parts of their life somewhat more uncomfortable. Um, you know, a foreign holiday will become more expensive, for instance, um, but nevertheless, the result of that would be a much more um, uh, stable foundation in terms of uh, the population, uh, good, a higher percentage of it working. I mean, I said at the outset, you've got 40% unemployed and 70% youth unemployment. We have to address that issue. Yeah. And closing your eyes to it um, is not going to make it go away. No, it's not. These numbers are absolutely staggering and are worthy of a much lengthier podcast at some time in the future. But on that note, we've got part three of your series of essays, uh, Michael, tomorrow. Just give us a taste of what I can expect. One of the reasons why I think that um, those who are relatively privileged in South Africa and, and for instance, like myself, um, uh, generally speaking, don't understand what's going on here is that we speak... That what, what I call the language of capital, and that is dollars. We speak rands and dollars. We speak our domestic currency, and so far as we make a reference to an international currency, it's usually dollar-based. So yeah. we make the Big Macs measured in index, uh, index measured in dollars, which is why the title is Bangladeshi Taka. You've got to start moving beyond that language and start looking at the different language that is being spoken in Asia, because essentially the dollar is the language of capital. But the Remnimbi and its fan club, its derivatives, is the language of labor. And we in South Africa have a labor problem. We don't have a capital problem per se. We have a labor problem. 70% youth unemployment. We have to understand that if we're to address that, we need to start speaking the language of labor and its various Asian dialects. The numbers that you've just quoted, 70%, is extraordinary. So you're walking down the street and you see 10 young people, seven of whom don't have a job, and some of whom will never have a job if we carry on like we are. Michael Power, thank you very much for your insight. I look forward enormously uh, to part three of this series of podcasts. Michael Power is an investment strategist at 91 in Cape Town. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.